Please turn in your New Testaments to Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Acts 19, 1 through 7. And Paul left Ephesus, and when he left Ephesus, the little handful of believers there said, please don't leave us, please stay with us, please teach us. And Paul said, if it's the Lord's will, I will be back. And he left, and God sent a a wonderful pastor, a wonderful preacher named Apollos to Ephesus. He really knows how to care for his people. And then Apollos went over to Corinth, and now the Holy Spirit has brought Paul back to Ephesus, And this will be the place and the time that he spends the longest tenure of ministry of all his missionary journeys. He will stay from this point on three years and teach and preach in Ephesus. That's an eternity for the Apostle Paul. The second highest, in case you're wondering, was Corinth that he just came from uh, two chapters back. And that was a year and a half. But as he comes back to Ephesus, he meets 12 very interesting men. And that is where we pick up our text this morning in 19.1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came, and I would say back, to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John the Baptist baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, and that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. This is a passage that a lot of people avoid. (laughs) I will just tell you that right now. Uh, This is a passage that is considered by many people to be controversial. And the reason that it's considered controversial is that a quarter in the church has tried to use this as a proof text to demonstrate that when you believe in Christ, you don't get the Spirit, or at least you don't get the baptism of the Spirit, and that's a subsequent event they teach. And it could be years after you're a believer that you actually get the fullness or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But this passage does not say anything like that to you or to me. In fact, if I were trying to prove that point, uh, this would not be a passage that I would use. There would be other passages that one might use to try to prove that point, but this would not be the one. Uh, This is taken out of a narrative at a certain time in history, and not everything that happens at every time is applicable equally so to now. Uh, But let me tell you something about this passage. This passage, as much as any passage in the entire book of Acts, gives a good message of encouragement to me and you. I mean, you won't believe 
how relevant and how encouraging when we get, begin to look at what this is actually saying, how encouraging this is to write where we are today uh, as followers of Christ. So we're not going to skip over it, okay? We're going to dive in. And um, one of the reasons that this cannot mean what many of our brothers and sisters whom we love say that it means uh, is simply because we're not even sure and there's a big division among evangelical or, or Bible-believing scholars um, whether these 12 people are actually Christians at all, whether they are actually believers in Christ at all. And if they are, then they are what we might call Old Testament believers who have believed in the Christ to come and they've never heard about Jesus Christ, uh, the cross or the empty tomb. And that brings us to a very important point, important point. And that is that Paul measures people differently than often we measure people. Often we measure people by the way they look, by something they might do in a given moment or say in a given moment. We don't ever forget what they did or said. Uh, there's all these outward things. There's all these things that that our antennas pick up, and we, we begin to measure people by these things, but Paul measures people only by the gospel. Only by the gospel. We shouldn't measure people by this other stuff. Look, we're all sinners. And, and the way Paul measures people, and this is such a merciful thing, is simply by a, the level of a person's understanding of the grace of God. Paul wants to know if people understand grace. Paul wants people forgiven. Paul wants people to be adopted into God's family. He wants them to have everlasting love. You see, we're not, we're not trying to conquer anything. We're not trying to make people do anything. We're, we're not trying to barter with anybody. We're trying to give away something, right? Called the gospel. And how do we do that? We need to find out what the gaps of knowledge that people have about the gospel in their lives. And we need to fill in those gaps with what the glorious gospel is. We need to apply the gospel to where people actually are. And Paul does this whether he's teaching in the synagogue with the Jews, right? That's one way of filling in the gap. This is the one you've been waiting for. That's how he fills in the gaps. Or whether he's in the marketplace with the Gentiles. And he has to start all over about the nature of God and creation and there's one God. And, and so he's, there's a lot more gaps, you know, for the Greek people out in, in, in the... Uh, and the Gentiles out in the marketplace. And then we have these 12, quote, disciples in Ephesus. And the point is this. Not everyone you meet who says they are a believer, a disciple, is an actual disciple of Jesus Christ. It's real important for us to grasp this. You say, well, that makes... I mean, that's just self-evident. Well, it's not the way sometimes we actually function in our lives. Paul does. It's very, very important. I'll tell you how important it is. I told and taught both of my daughters not to assume things about people spiritually at college. I taught them to ask questions about whether people knew the gospel, whether they had a living relationship, particularly people of the opposite sex, because I wouldn't want somebody, them to marry somebody who says they're a Christian, but really they love their truck more than Jesus. I digress. <laughs> but everyone who says they are a Christian are not one. 
So what do you do? You don't just say, well, you may not be a Christian. No, it's very positive. You begin to ask questions. You begin to be interested in that person. You begin to lovingly find out about them. Let the, congregation, the, the, the conversation shift from you to them. Lovingly know them. Lovingly find out the gaps of grace and, and apply the gospel to people where they are. And Paul meets these people who are disciples. But we're not sure in our cursory reading of it whose disciples they are. And so Paul asks questions. First question he asked. It's very direct. Verse 2, when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? We could put it this way. And I'll kind of tell you why he asked that question in a moment. Tell me about when you believed, is what he's saying. We, we are disciples. Oh, good. Tell me about when you believed. What did you believe in? What was it like? And did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why is he asking, did you receive the Holy Spirit? We don't ask that of people today. People receive the Holy Spirit when they believe. Well, it's because... At that time, you know, the Holy Spirit came down on the believers at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Jesus said, it's it's not good that I stay around and unless I go to the Father, I can't give the Spirit. We read in our call to worship about how we receive the Spirit and He lives, He's with us and He lives in us. And and the, the, the... prophecy of Joel is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on these believers, people like Peter, James, John, you know, and the Holy Spirit comes down, right? And so this is like a Jewish religion that's Christian until Philip goes to Samaria, yuck, hated Samaritans, and they put their trust in Jesus and the strangest thing happens, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And then Peter, in a dream, is sent to the home, no, no, say it ain't so, of a Roman centurion who has believed and the Holy Spirit falls on the house of Cornelius uh, in Acts chapter 10. So why Paul is asking, hey, tell me about when you believed. Did you receive the Spirit? It's because when they all gathered in Acts chapter 15 trying to make sense of what to do with the Samaritans, and the, the Gentiles who believe, should we treat them equally? Should they make, we make them Jews? You know what the big proof text was? And Peter and Paul said it. No, they're just like us. And they didn't need all, all the regulations. They didn't need circumcision. How do we know they're just like us? Because they have the Holy Spirit. Because God has authenticated simple belief in Jesus by the Spirit of God falling on them just as He did upon us at Pentecost. That's why Paul brings this up at this time. At that time, there was a lot going on with the Holy Spirit falling on these different folks. And so you would ask, tell me about when you believed and do you have the Holy Spirit? And then the other big thing he asked, what about your baptism? Now, you know, we probably don't emphasize baptism in the modern world enough because sure enough, you're not saved by baptism. But baptism was and is the badge of belief in the grace of God and the covenant of God and being in the people of God. Baptism means you are a part of God's church through grace. That's what it means. And we believe it is to us 
and to our children. So in those days, you know, to actually undergo being baptized was kind of a serious deal. So he says, so tell me about when you believe. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Tell me about your baptism. I mean, we're like, Paul's really kind of being invasive. No, this is pretty normative. It's pretty normal for that time. And um, into what, verse 3, into what were you baptized? But these people were disciples, we learn, of John the Baptist. And they were baptized into John's baptism. John himself, or one of John's disciples, baptized. It was a baptism uh, that Paul goes on to say of repentance and preparation of the heart to believe in the one who was to come. Meaning, they may not have been believers yet. In fact, the majority of scholars do not think they were. But there's a whole lot that do, and we'll get there in a minute. Being a disciple of John does not mean you were a disciple of Jesus. Just because you heard about the one to come and you were baptized to make your heart ready for him does not mean you are trusting in the one to come. And so what did Paul do? Paul sums it up and he goes, I get the gap. I I see the gap of grace here. He told them about Jesus. He told them about the cross. He told them that John actually pointed Jesus of Nazareth out and screamed, Behold, look, right there. I'm talking about their God, John the Baptist. Right there, Jesus of Nazareth is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He talked to them about the resurrection. He talked to them about belief and what it means to be born again. And they were baptized in the name of Jesus, we read. And the Spirit came down on them. We should only measure people by their understanding of the gospel. Not by the outward stuff. This is especially true in the South. I mean, can we just be honest? There are a lot of folk around here. Like, you know, the old, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like it must be a duck. Ain't true about Christians in the South. <laughs> he can walk like a Christian, talk like a Christian, quack like a Christian, because a lot of us are quacks. And uh, it doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you're from Mississippi. <laughs> or your daddy was. Or your granddaddy. Notice how I said data instead of daddy. So we don't assume about people, correct? You know, there are people in this service, and there are even more as I'm looking out and seeing who's here. I do look and check. I want you to know that. Um, There are people in this service, uh, a few, and there are even more in the second service um, who actually came to Christ in the worship service here at Highlands. Just through the preaching of the gospel. And you know that little prayer that I always kind of, almost always have at the end? You know how you can pray to receive Christ? You'd be stunned at the number of people at the door or on the phone who said, you know, Joseph, I thought I was a Christian when we came here. But I got it. And that little prayer you prayed? I did it! (laughs) I'm a Christian now. Or they said... I never quite knew if I was... And maybe they were... You know, who knows? It's kind of like these people. Are they or are they not? But now I know for certain. Do you know why? Because at Highlands Presbyterian Church, we don't assume. And we want to preach the gospel. And we want to give opportunity for people to come to know the Lord. Good, fine, upstanding people who need Jesus. And they have Him. You know, in that big passage in, in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 5 where Paul says, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That it is as, as if God were, were making His appeal through us, be reconciled to God, become friends with God again through Christ. And it's all about the gospel. Paul ends that section in 1 Corinthians 5.16. He says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning we only regard them according to the gospel. We don't look at what they sound like. We don't look at what they talk about. We get to know them. We love them. We're not ugly. We're not jerking people around. We are gentle. We are inquisitive. We are loving. We care, right? I mean, why do we do evangelism? Isn't it because we care? Can I make a little sidetrack on one other thing before we get to the major encouragement of this passage? To just speak a little bit to a particular challenge we have in our culture today. You know, we live in a world that tends to think that everybody who is nice is going to heaven. Everybody who believes something and is nice and believes it is going to heaven. All religions are the same, we're told. Everybody's basically good anyway. And therefore, how arrogant it must be for anyone to measure another person by one religion. You understand what I just said? How dare you measure people by your gospel when your religion's only one of the panoply of 10,000 religions in the world? Because how can you say that your gospel is the only way to God? But folks, here's the deal. We cannot be influenced by that. We must not be intimidated by that. Young people, young people in school, though everybody around you say that, do not believe it, do not capitulate to it, do not act like it. Because it's not true. And the fact that a majority of people believe something does not make it true. There is a ledger of sin before a holy God. There is. There is... Pass, fail, all or nothing before God. It only takes one sin to be cast out of the Garden of Eden, and it only takes one sin to be kept out of heaven, and that's why Jesus Christ came from the Father in the flesh, took our place, and died for all of our sins. Not one is left unpaid for, and the grace of God is complete and wonderful there is heaven and there is hell and there is a beautiful love relationship of unconditional and eternal love for people to not miss. Okay? Because God is holy, holy, holy. Religious works done by sinners cannot succeed. Cannot. And grace accomplished by God Himself for us cannot fail cannot if it is believed only the gospel the unique gospel of god to the rescue of god who sacrifices rather than people sacrificing to a god only the gospel brings salvation and it's only by grace and look we don't claim any credit do we and we only pass along this message that someone else has done everything for us and you too can be forgiven on the basis of His work and this gift forever. 
One of the important books that I read in the last few years was a book by J.P. Moreland called The Kingdom Triangle. Though I don't recommend the last third of the book about the church, I do recommend this book. It's kind of the first two-thirds, kind of a compilation of a lot of his works. Uh, It's kind of about our view of the world as Christians and how to defend the faith as Christians. It's called, if you want to write it down, The Kingdom Triangle. I want to quote to you from J.P. Moreland on this particular aspect. I just think it's wonderful. I watched with sadness the movie shown on the airplane eastbound flight that I was on in the summer of 2002. The plot of the movie called Stolen Summer features Pete, an eight-year-old Christian boy living in the suburbs of Chicago in the 1970s, and his attempt to convert Danny, a boy of the same age, and a Jewish rabbi's son during their summer break from school. Pete's efforts are motivated by a desire to follow the Lord and bring salvation and a hope of heaven to Danny. Pete is an exclusivist, meaning Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Unfortunately, Danny becomes seriously ill and passes away during the summer. As the movie closes, Pete attends Danny's funeral, meets his family, and offers an apology. He says to Pete's dad, the Jewish rabbi, quote, Sir, I have to ask for you to forgive me for what I have done to your family and to your son. I've tried to get your son to change and be a Christian, and now I know that that was terrible of me. It really doesn't matter what you believe. It just matters that you love people. I go on to read Moreland. Now he knows that it doesn't matter what you believe at all about God. All roads lead to him, and it is sincerity that really matters. And I love this line. He says, what was really stolen that summer was Pete's understanding of the gospel. He ends up, last quote, being a politically correct pluralist who has learned, quote, not to force his views on others. Please do not be tempted to go there. Paul doesn't judge people by the way they look, by the way they talk. He's not judging them by how they vote. He's not judging. I mean, these are not the... We're not hate mongers. We're not out there just trying to stir people up and make them look bad. No, Paul judges them only by grace and their understanding of grace and love and mercy. And he tries to fill in the gaps of grace. You see, he shows us a different way. Tell me about when you believed, he says. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Into what were you baptized? Oh, let me tell you, it's Jesus. Let me tell you what he did. And they believed in Jesus. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit authenticated that by coming into their lives. But, can we go back to the text now? Some scholars believe that these people are believers. And if that is true, then that is the major encouragement for us here today. Maybe they were what we might call Old Testament style believers. You know, like Moses, like David. I mean, Moses and David believed we call it in the Christ to come. They, they understood that there would be a sacrifice. They understood the sacrifice would be blood. They understood the sacrifice would be in the Messiah from God and that it would be complete. And they understood that he would rule and reign. That's a big part of being the Messiah as well. Um, 
basically we see an ignorance of Jesus Christ in them in this passage. Maybe we assume they were only with John or, or heard from John. They, they never made it to the point where John identified Jesus of Nazareth personally to be the Messiah. They had never heard about the cross. So maybe they were like Old Testament believers. In, indeed, Jesus basically called John the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Did he not? And yet least in the kingdom of heaven. Meaning somebody that, that knows Christ and is, has the Holy Spirit is even greater than John. So, in this case, having the gaps filled would simply be identifying who the Savior is that they've put their trust in and, and who they've already believed in without knowing exactly who it is and the Holy Spirit coming down on them just like the Holy Spirit came down on on Cornelius, who was a believer, and, and on the Samaritans, and on the, the people at Pentecost. Um, you know, it, it, and it's interesting how this happens, doesn't it? It, it kind of goes out, think about it, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. kind of goes out Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth, you know, kind of the Romans... Um, John, John Stott talks about each of these pouring out on, on believers as, and I love this, he says they are a mini Pentecost. And that's what it is. Because what you see is the Spirit falls down. Uh, they begin to speak in other languages. And they did at Pentecost. Uh, there's no mention of an unknown language in this passage. These are, we assume that it's just like, the, like Pentecost. There's no reason to not assume in Acts 19 that this is different from Pentecost. And they begin to preach or prophesy the word of God and, and, and what is uh, in his name. That's exactly what happened at Pentecost. They went out and 3,000 people believed through that preaching in one day. And God, you see, as, as the gospel kind of went out from Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, God was kind of catching up people with the Holy Spirit. There's a process going on in the book of Acts. Do you find that interesting? I do. Uh, I find it interesting for several reasons. Because, you know, God being God, you would think that when the Holy Spirit came down on the believers at Pentecost, that he would like automatically catch everybody up at one time. Kind of like a computer network manager does an upgrade on every computer in the system all at once. I mean, God's God. Why couldn't he just have everybody just have the Spirit right there? Don't you find it interesting that it actually goes out? This event actually goes out? I find it fascinating. You know how it happened, don't you? The Spirit of God coming down in Acts 8, in Acts 10, with Samaria, with Cornelius, and now in Acts 19 with these disciples of John in Ephesus. It happened through the ministry of people as they made their way out toward and into the Gentile world. Meaning, ministry is incarnational. That's a big word. It just means in the flesh. Ministry is something we carry to people because we love them personally. Even the Spirit of God coming 
came through personal ministry? What does that say about the value of personal ministry? Well, of course it should not surprise us because that's how the ministry of God and Christ came to us. The gospel is always incarnational. I mean, God can have Muslims see dreams in that time. I'm not saying that there are not... A, but, but hey, God left heaven, right? God took on human flesh. God tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. God bodily in our place for us, in, spatially in a body, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took, bore our penalty on the cross. In other words, ministry of the gospel always comes with skin on. That's the nature of it. It's God to the rescue as one of us. And that's the way it still goes. Ministry goes ordinarily with skin on. It's person to person. It's people that don't judge people by all these strange things, but people who care, who get out there and begin to touch lives, begin to ask questions, who want to fill in the gaps of grace in other people's lives. In John 20, 21, Jesus put it this way. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. As the Father sent me personally to you, so I, Jesus, our Lord says, I send you personally to people. That's massively encouraging to me. Because what does it say about the importance of your life with other people? What does it say about the importance of any ministry I might have with other people? Applying the gospel anytime you show and tell the gospel. Don't you think because you're not an evangelist you don't count? Don't you think because you're not a missionary you don't count? Anytime in His name you show and tell the gospel, it is incarnational, it is powerful, it is exactly how God's ministry happened. Even it's how the Holy Spirit came to people in Ephesus. What this means is when you bring a meal to somebody in His name, it is beautiful. It's incarnational. Jesus said, did He not... Not even a cup of cold water given in my name will lose its reward. Why did Jesus talk about that? Why just something so small? Because there are no small acts of mercy and grace in the kingdom. There are no small people in the kingdom of God. You matter. Your hearts matter. Your love matters. Your mercy matters because it is the mercy and grace of God Himself through you. And though we don't save anybody, only God does that, we bear the gospel, don't we? And if we had people raise their hand, and I've done it in every church I've served, how many people came to Christ at a crusade? One or two hands. How many people came to Christ by preaching? About six or seven, ten hands go up. How many people came to Christ because somebody sat down and explained it to you and loved you? Almost all the hands go up. And though we don't save anybody and God does this, we do bear the gospel to people. We bring it. With skin on. It reminds us of Jesus' word, go. It reminds us of missions. It reminds us of our mission in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our classroom, 
in all these intersections of life and culture. It's terribly encouraging, terribly exciting. And let me conclude by simply saying this. And you know what the result of it is? Yes, through you. The result is people who begin to see Christ in you. The result is people who will allow you to understand because you know them and you're not judging them, allow you to begin to understand their gaps of grace. And people who allow you to fill in the gaps of grace. It results in people who sweetly, simply believe in Jesus and turn to Him and Him alone for salvation who receive forgiveness and ever-present and everlasting, unconditional love that we must have to live a true human life. And it results in the giving of the Holy Spirit when we believe to live inside of us and inside of people who will then go and show and tell the gospel with others. Isn't that encouraging? This isn't a scary passage. Let's pray. Lord, would you do this in our lives? Would you help us to not judge people according to the flesh? Would you help us measure people only by their knowledge of the gospel? And if you've never put your trust in Christ, and you get it now, you, you just suddenly get it and you really want to have a relationship with the Lord, then just pray with me. Lord, I see it, and I want to turn away from everything that I've called religion and everything that I've called Christianity, and I want to turn now to you alone. And Jesus, I put my trust in what you have accomplished for me and taking away all of my sins through being punished in my place on the cross. And I receive you into my life and I receive the everlasting life that you've accomplished for me in the resurrection Lord would you keep me close to you would you help me to dwell in your grace and Lord uh, there are many of us who know you and yet we have been how can we say some of us a little dormant would you awaken what ministry can look like even through us, showing and telling the gospel. And would you accomplish that at the intersections of life and culture? And would you bring people to yourself? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.